Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's exciting webinar. I am Tim Stark and the host of today's exciting event. I'm a professor of civil engineering at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and technical director of the Fabricated Geomembrane Institute. This is our sixth webinar of 2020, and the remaining 11 webinars for 2020 have already been scheduled with great speakers and timely topics. And I'll show you the next webinar after Jeremy's presentation. During today's webinar, we welcome question and comments, which can be typed into the questions box in the control panel. You may send in your questions at any time during the presentation, and our speaker will address them at the end of today's presentation. The recording of this webinar and a PDF of the slides will be made available on the FGI website after today's presentation. PDH certificates will be sent automatically to all who attend the entire webinar. Today's webinar speaker is Dr. Jeremy Morris. Jeremy is a principal engineer with Geosyntech Consultants in Columbia, Maryland. Jeremy received his PhD from Wits University in Johannesburg, South Africa in 2001 and started working for Geosyntech shortly thereafter that. Prior to his PhD, Jeremy received his bachelor's and master's degree from Imperial College in the early 1990s when Professor Skempton was still working in his office in the Skempton building at Imperial College. So I'm sure that was quite a treat. Jeremy has served as the lead investigator on several US EPA research studies and written guidance on long-term performance and care of waste containment facilities. The title of Jeremy's webinar today is Post-Closure Care of Landfills, which is a topic that has been requested by a number of our viewers over the last year or so. Jeremy, thanks so much for squeezing this webinar into your busy schedule and joining us from Columbia, Maryland. The webinar controls are yours, Jeremy. Thank you, Tim, and uh, thank you for the opportunity um, afforded me by uh, FGI to uh, present today. Um, as you mentioned, the topic of my, um, of my talk today is post-closure care of landfills, which has really been the uh, career focus for, for myself while I've been uh, at Geosyntec um, over the last um, 20 years almost, um, and indeed was a, really the focus of the, uh, the doctoral research that I did at Wits University in Johannesburg. So um, endeavors in this field go back uh, you know, over three decades or so. So I have quite a lot of material to get through. I'm gonna try and get straight into it. Um, I'm gonna talk about uh, post-closure care, um, focusing on municipal solid waste landfills, so subtitle D landfills in, in the US regulatory uh, context. Uh, overview some of the goals and terminology, and then specifically talk about um, functional stability and custodial care as ways to define the end of post-closure care. And I like this word end because it has two meanings. End means termination, of course, um, but it also means purpose. To what end are you doing something? So to give purpose and termination to post-closure care, we need to think about things in a performance-based way um, and these uh, terms, functional stability and custodial care, are uh, how we go about doing that. Um, I'll do a brief regulatory update, um, again, focusing on the United States, which is where my practice is. Um, I'll then run through some of the evaluations of post-closure care that can be done to look at where a site is and how it could end post-closure care uh, with regard to its uh, main components, which is leachate management, gas management and associated uh, water quality monitoring, both groundwater and surface water, uh, cover maintenance, um, and then miscellaneous other activities. Um, I'm going to try and illustrate um, that process using case studies that I've worked on over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, we'll finish the webinar with a brief mention of beneficial reuse of landfills. That's really a topic uh, in its own right that, that could have its own webinar. Some people are doing really creative things, but um, uh, I'll, I'll make a brief mention of that and then wrap things up. So first of all, why end post-closure care? Well, from the perspective of society at large, um, obviously it gives us the opportunity to optimize resources. Um, we're not permanently marginalizing land as landfills and then close landfills and, it never, and it's never available for any other purpose. 
which was not the intent of the RECRA uh, regulations. So what we're talking about is a site that is used as a landfill. It's then cared for under a regulated post-closure care program for an appropriate amount of time. And then it can transition to some other beneficial reuse, which adds value to the community, either recreationally or as a, a wildlife habitat or for commercial or, or select agricultural purposes. Um, from the perspective of a regulator, um, obviously you want to end uh, post-closure care in order to provide some cost certainty and liability management in terms of your uh, closed landfill portfolios. Um, and also it's a, a goodwill um, and, and um, outreach opportunity to be working with a community to look for what happens to a landfill once uh, care has ended and you can have some beneficial uh, reuse going on. And then finally, even from a regulatory uh, perspective, there's a lot of benefit to ending post-closure care. You can avoid an ever-increasing uh, workload. Obviously, any landfill that closes becomes a closed landfill, and closed landfills have post-closure care associated with them. So uh, what we've seen in recent decades is a lot of sites get closed, uh, sometimes due to consolidation in, in uh, the, the waste industry, uh, which is what happened in the US USA over the last few decades. But it can also be through regulatory changes, such as disposal bans on organics, which can uh, you know, cause consolidation and closure of a, of a lot of sites. But whatever the driver, the thing that you know is when a site closes, it becomes part of the uh, portfolio of closed sites that a regulator needs to keep an eye on. So if we can get some of those sites out of post-closure care, um, we can avoid an ever-increasing workload and we can focus regulation and attention where it's most needed. So what are the components of um, post-closure care that we're interested in? Oops. Um, there are six main components, um, and each of these um, are going to be very different at, at different sites or may not exist at all at different sites. But when you're looking at ending post-closure control systems at a landfill, you're looking at making sure that all of these systems that are in place or were in place can be safely uh, terminated or transitioned to some passive level of management. So from leachate management, you may have recirculation still going on. That would need to be completed before you end post-closure care. You've got leachate collection and a liner system which provides containment. Um, and then you'll have some form of leachate treatment and discharge either on-site or off-site, uh, depending on what your scenario is. Um, associated with leachate management, you'll have groundwater monitoring with a network of wells around the site in order to ensure that um, the landfill is not um, impacting the uh, surrounding environment. You'll have landfill gas collection with um, a network of gas wells, um, generally connected to a flare or a waste-to-energy utilization facility of some kind. Um, you'll have gas migration monitoring associated with that, generally with a network of probes around the perimeter of a site that uh, allow you to ensure that you're not getting gas migration um, beyond your realm of control. Um, to maintain these systems, you'll have a level of cap maintenance and monitoring required, you know, focused on the final cover system, often with some surface water management components um, tied into that. Uh, which may or may not have some monitoring requirements associated uh, with them. And then there are general property maintenance activities such as maintaining access control and et cetera. So when you're looking at, at ending post-closure care, you're really needing to examine each of these components and figuring out um, how you can safely reduce them uh, or, or completely terminate them. Uh, so. We have a lot of operational experience about the long-term performance of landfills. So this little cartoon figure here illustrate, illustrates the, the, the passage of a landfill through its initial construction and operating phases on the left, through intermediate cover installation and then final closure um, as we move over to the right-hand side. Um, and we have very good performance data over several decades on, on how landfills perform in terms of leachate generation and landfill gas generation. Um, that's associated with this uh, life cycle passage um, of, of the, the landfill through time. Um, the liner system indicated here, we have a lot of data um, indicating that as long as a liner remains isolated from air um, and you know, other uh, factors that could cause degradation, that uh, it should remain competent for decades or even centuries. Um, 
certainly for the period of time that we are interested in, in terms of post-closure care. Uh, the final cover system, similarly, which includes several layers generally, um, and importantly includes the vegetation that's um, uh, installed on, on the top as an erosion control measure, um, that provides isolation of the waste, and there's a lot of evidence to show that that can remain competent um, for a very long term, as long as it is cared for, so no exposure of the barrier materials. Um, so we also have a lot of um, scientific experience regarding the long-term performance of landfills. Most people are pretty familiar with the, uh, the five phases of um, landfill um, degradation as proposed by uh, Fred Poland and, and others in the 1980s. Um, other researchers, uh, Peter Kelson and Mort Barlas, for example, have um, uh, proposed that, that beyond the, the stable methanogenic or methane oxidation stage five, there are a series of other stages that could occur if, if no care is provided for a site and it is allowed to uh, gradually de degrade until it eventually becomes an inert uh, mass. Um, but really, I think this illustrates very well what the goal of functional stability is uh, and why we want to achieve functional stability rather than an inert uh, uh, mass, which is how we would probably define organic stability. Um, we have a lot of data regarding the performance of landfills in early stages, and as we move through the phases, things become increasingly more speculative. Um, so what we're seeking to do um, when looking at functional stability is get to stage five. That's where everything is stable or, or exhibiting downward trends, and we want to prevent the site from moving into phase six, where things become much more uncontrollable and unpredictable, You'd have some air intrusion, some redox changes, some remobilization of metals potentially. Um, so we really don't want to get to organic stability. We want to get to functional stability and then um, find a way through passive measures to keep landfill at that stage. Looking at the US regulatory context for post-closure care from a federal level, um, for, for MSW landfills, we're looking at RECRA subtitle D. Um, there's a general assumption that um, subtitle D's post-closure care term is 30 years, but actually the regulation is performance-based and requires an owner-operator to um, continue carrying and managing uh, leachate and gas and, and other uh, aspects of the site until you can demonstrate that there's no threat to human health and the environment. Uh, the regulation defines um, the point of exposure um, typically as the closest property boundary at which a receptor could be um, exposed. So, you know, we have a nice definition under a performance-based approach of, of what the point of exposure is that we're trying to prevent impacts at. And then we monitor at some point between the landfill and the point of exposure, which is the point of compliance. So all of our monitoring wells, our groundwater wells, our gas probes, et cetera, um, comprise the point of compliance. Uh, that may be at the same place as the point of exposure, but it certainly can't be further out than the point of exposure. Um, active gas management is terminated when um, its uh, gas control system is no longer required to control subsurface migration. That's the rule under subtitle D. There are, of course, other regulations in the US that govern landfill gas control from an emissions perspective. Um, that's the, uh, the NSPS regulations. Um, EPA has issued some guidance for um, post-closure care, um, but mostly focused on subtitle D. There isn't really any guidance specifically focused on subtitle uh, D. Um, EPA put out a short memo at the end of 2016 outlining the process that regulators should go through when examining a petition or, or, a, or a request to end care at a subtitle C site. That's quite a short document, but it, it packs in a lot of information. There are two very large, long and, and uh, detailed um, reports detailing the long-term performance of containment systems at RECRA facilities, and the, uh, the references for those documents are, are available here. Um, so what's the goal of performance-based evaluation? We, we know from looking at the regulation that this is the intent of uh, RECRA subtitle D and subtitle, and subtitle uh, C. Um, so we want to end post-closure care in a safe and defensible manner. We want to get to functional stability, that's phase five of the waste degradation curve, and not go all the way to organic stability. 
So how do we define that? Uh, we have a definition that was proposed by Swana's Bioreactor Committee back in 2004, which is shown on the screen here. I reword that slightly in the work that I do to say a landfill is functionally stable when it doesn't pose a threat at the point of exposure in the absence of active control systems. So once your landfill control systems are fully passive or they've been entirely eliminated, then your landfill is functionally stable. And once you're functionally stable, you can end post-closure care. Um, the technical basis for that then obviously is um, defined in terms of um, achieving a non-impacting relationship between the landfill and the receiving environment at the POC as measured at the PO, uh, sorry, at the POE as measured at the POC. It's performance-based and, and site-specific. There's no time frame, there's no general time frame associated with care. It's going to depend on conditions at each site, uh, the waste in place, how large it is, the underlying hydrology, hydrogeology, the, um, the, the climate, and a number of other factors. So there's no specified time frame, but a 30-year benchmark is a good target. So if you're an owner-operator of a landfill and thinking about ending post-closure care in a reasonable time frame, then planning for it over a 30-year period is definitely a good initial target. Some sites may be able to complete care in a shorter time, and, and a few sites may require a slightly longer time, depending on site-specific conditions. As we've noted, we're not concerned with organic stabilization, but we're, we're um, concerned with a non-impacting relationship with the environment, which means we're really looking at emissions and how they could impact the environment under worst-case release scenarios. To do anything um, performance-based, we need a lot of data. You can't do any evaluations of performance without data, and you need good you need data to be able to be um, evaluated in a statistically robust way, which means you need a long data series. So start early, um, collect more data than you think you're going to need, start collecting it sooner than you think you're going to need it. Because when you get 20, you know, 10, 15, 20 years into post-closure and you're starting to look at doing some evaluations, you're really going to need um, a lot of data. And then Based on our evaluations, we can look at making step-down reductions in post-closure care. So we start with everything fully active. We want to look over time at transitioning activities to more and more passive uh, means, you know, perhaps managing leachate with a, an on-site wetlands treatment system, um, and eventually getting to the stage where we can confidently demonstrate that uh, all care at the site can be fully passive. And very importantly, every time we make a change to a post-closure care system, we can monitor the outcome to confirm that, that what we evaluated and what we predicted the behavior would be um, is what it is. Once we achieve functional stability and we end post-closure care, something has to come after that. We define that as custodial care, which is a de minimum level of care that would be needed just to take care of, of the property, um, kind of similar to um, property management responsibilities that any landowner would have. Um, and those are going to vary depending on what the previous use of the site was. Um, custodial care will always consist of some cover maintenance because you'll need to isolate the barriers, uh, the barrier layers in the cover, and you'll need to make sure that the waste is contained. There'll be maintenance of some other site fit features and generally access controls, unless your post-closure care plan allows uh, free public access to a site, which is possible, but it makes the evaluation of um, you know, control of impacts at the point of exposure pretty difficult when your point of exposure might be the, the cover of the landfill itself. Um, you can mandate custodial care through land use controls, uh, environmental covenants, etc. So it can exist outside of the solid waste regulatory program. And very importantly, you know, the owner retains responsibility for a site when it's in custodial care. There's no walk away from uh, responsibilities for a former landfill site, but allowing transition out of post-closure care into custodial care allows um, a much more creative beneficial reuse options to be considered. Um, some guidance that's available um, to um, perform, to, to do a, a performance-based evaluation of post-closure care. I'm going to be talking primarily about a methodology that was developed for EREF about uh, 15 years ago. That's the evaluation of post-closure care or the EPCC methodology. Um, ITRC, SWANA, and NWRA all have um, guidance documents in one form or another that provide some information on how to go about a post-closure performance-based evaluation. 
And then if we look at where states are, um, there's a number of states that have implemented regulations that um, that either that, that are that have implemented regulations or guidance focused on providing information on how to make a, a demonstration of uh, functional stability or you know a performance-based evaluation of ending post-closure care. Uh, two very notable ones here highlighted in green in Washington State. Um, there's a regulation um, which requires landfill owners to predict when their site will achieve conditions of functional stability. Um, and then their post-closure care plan and their financial assurance gets linked to that predicted time frame, as opposed to just a, you know, an arbitrary 20 or 30 year period. And then there's a, a guidance document issued recently in Florida, 2016, um, that, that provides a step-by-step -step procedure for how to end long-term care at solid waste um, facilities and transition to a post-regulatory custodial care program. Um, a few other examples here. New York has a, a recent regulation looking at ending post-closure care and transitioning to custodial care, but um, uh, DEC defines custodial care within the solid waste program. So a little bit different to how I define it under the EPCC methodology where it's post-solid uh, waste regulations. In New York, it's, it's part of the regulation. So there are always some differences in, uh, in terminology and, and thinking but generally all of these states have issued uh, guidance or regulations on how to do assessments uh, based on performance rather than um, trying to meet organic stability goals or, or just simple um, stipulated timeframes. So experience that we've gained with the EPCC methodology in the last uh, 10 or so years, the states shown in blue here are where I've done some research type level uh, analyses or, or internal evaluations of one or more aspects of post-closure care for a, for a landfill owner, but nothing has been submitted. The states shown in orange, which there's five of, are where we've done an evaluation and prepared a report that has been submitted to a regulator. And then the, the state shown in green, Texas, is the site where a, a regulator has approved termination of a post-closure care uh, permit uh, as a result of a demonstration made. So we've picked up a lot of um, experience and I'm going to use this um, as I walk through the process of evaluating functional stability with regard to the main components of care at a landfill, starting with landfill gas. So how do we get away from active gas management with a lot of monitoring, uh, maintenance, et cetera, to a passive management strategy? So to start off, we'll need to define and then meet a functional stability target. You know, where, where are we trying to get to and then how do we demonstrate that we've got there? Um, part of that will include uh, showing a statistical downtrend in uh, collectible methane. Uh, we'll need to show then that when we eliminate active gas controls and move to passive gas controls, that that doesn't result in impacts. So we'll need a level of, uh, of uh, monitoring that's focused on showing that that transition that you made was appropriate. You'll always have some level of cap maintenance associated with gas control. Um, and you know, you need to make sure if you've got plans for beneficial reuse of your property, say as a recreational field, you need to make sure that your long-term gas management plan is compatible with that. Um, once you've confirmed that your system, your passive system or, or your, or your no-gas system is, is working, uh, you can then be um, considered to be in, in conditions for functional stability or custodial care with regard to gas management. And the way I always try to think about where you're trying to get to is if you could wrap your management system into a general property maintenance program, um, something that was um, undertaken by a landscaping company as opposed to a professional engineer or an environmental scientist, then you're really meeting the conditions of um, functional stability. Um, some examples in the pictures below of passive controls that can be installed um, as alternatives to active controls at landfills. So establishing targets for functional stability, there are three real ways that we can do this. Either a regulator provides a standard that we have to meet, which is the easiest way in terms of the, um, you know, the, the amount of work you have to do. Um, there are no examples in the US of that. Um, in Europe, I know that Austria and France have proposed some um, standards for uh, you know, when uh, gas generation levels get so low that managing gas actively using a flare or something like that ceases to, to be optimal um, and passive control measures are, uh, are preferred. 
We can define a de minimis residual gas generation rate for ourselves in the absence of a standard. Generally, we look at 10% of the peak as being the de minimis residual gas generation rate. Um, it's a little bit arbitrary, but if you think about what that means, that means 90% of gas production is in the past. So all we're dealing with is the 10% residual gas generation that's left. That'll be in the tail of the gas curve, which might be quite long, but we're never going to be looking at very high levels of gas production relative to where they were in the past. Um, and then a backed specification, best available control technology. Again, some jurisdictions have, have guidance on that where passive controls become uh, optimal to active controls. There's a very good example in, uh, in Ireland of that. Um, but generally, if those are lacking, we tend to go with the um, demonstrating de minimis residual gas um, production. So um, if you have, you know, if, if you have gas collection data through the post-closure life of a landfill, then you can look at what your collection rate was at closure and you can say, okay, I just need to get to 10% of that. Most sites don't have that. A lot of them have a, uh, a cluster of data available in recent years, but, but not so much going back into the, the 90s or the 80s if they uh, were closed a long time ago. So what we can do then is just do a projection back using an exponential decay function um, to estimate what the peak flow would have been closure and then say, okay, our goal for functional stability would be to get to about 10% of that. And this graph here shows an example of where we did that at a site in Louisiana. Um, we can sometimes combine a back type specification with this um, de minimis residual gas concept to develop a, um, you know, a target for functional stability. So this is a site in Washington that had a, um, an alternative cover, an evapotranspirative cover um, permitted. Um, as part of the performance-based design process for that cover, soil oxidation measurements were taken by um, Tariq Avichu and his team at Florida State. So we then have a graph that says for different bottom fluxes, which we can relate to overall gas production, we know how much oxidation we would expect to achieve. So if we set our functional stability target at 90% oxidation on, on an average annual basis, which is kind of the 10% concept, but uh, in reverse, we, that relates to a bottom flux of six grams per square meter per day. And we know the overall gas production at the site, so that translates into 120 standard cubic feet per minute. So we've then got our target for functional stability established based on this backed specification. Um, and um, we can look, um, you know, once we've established our target, we can estimate what the time to functional stability would be. So here's an example of a, a closed site in, in Washington where we did that. It was, you know, a very wet site overall, you know, it's Washington. Um, the site consisted of two mounds, an older pre-subtitle D unit and a, and a newer uh, subtitle D unit, both connected to the same flare. So we evaluated them together because they were both contributing uh, gas to the same control system. But when we model gas production using LandGem, you'll see with the blue line here that we get two distinct peaks because one is for the older unit and, and the, the second one is for the newer unit. We know our peak collection rate, so we know what our 10% target for functional stability is. We can calibrate the model using um, on-site data. So you can see here the yellow, the, the orange data was used to calibrate the blue gas curve and we very, get a very close fit. So based on this, we were able to estimate when we did our evaluation that we would expect to achieve functional stability sometime around about 2017 or so. So that then becomes our goal when we're going to make the transition from active to passive uh, management. And then based on that, we're going to design a confirmation monitoring program to show that that transition was, was appropriate. So we would leave all the active control system components in place until we've demonstrated that we don't need them anymore. A quick example of where we did um, a transition from active to passive gas management. This is a, an old unlined site in New York that has a geomembrane cap. So obviously the concern here with stopping active gas extraction is that we might get some pretty significant gas migration monitoring or we might get um, unacceptable levels of gas pressure buildup underneath the geomembrane cap. So we designed a monitoring program that um, would, would en enable us to show that that wasn't occurring. Um, so that involved um, installing some uh, pressure transducers just below the cap so we could measure pressure buildup in the absence of a, of a vacuum. And then there were some, some nearby um, structures. So we put in a passive um, cutoff trench as a control measure 
and then we wanted to look at what uh, whether we were getting any methane accumulation on the outside of the trench. So is any in the absence of active gas care uh, control, are we getting any gas migration beyond that passive cutoff trench? Um, we can fix the monitoring duration for that based on the, the maximum time of travel for migration from the landfill tow to the gas probes. Uh, for that, we're looking at time of travel in the unsaturated zone under ad, ad, advection and diffusion, which isn't particularly straightforward, but it can be done. There's some guidance in the EPCC methodology uh, for how to do that. And we calculated that we would need to monitor for nine months to be sure that if a, a migration impact was going to occur, that we would have detected it at that monitoring probe there. So looking first at our pressure readings, we set an action level that, that could uh, result in, in you know, potential geotechnical instability of the cap, and we never got pressure buildup under the cover anywhere close to that. So we know that the absence of active gas management is not critical in terms of cover stability. And then if we looked at our migration profile, um, the yellow line here is just a, a, an indicator of when we had the flare on. So we, we turned the flare off at this stage and then started started a very rigorous program of monitoring soil gas um, concentrations at the probe outside of the, the well. We had a little bit of um, de detections in the immediate phase. I think this was just some uh, residual pockets of methane that were left from the um, trench um, construction. But then for nine months, uh, we were able to show on a daily basis that we were not getting any methane in that trench. We know that that exceeds the time of travel that we would expect it to take for gas to migrate. And therefore, we've demonstrated that our passive gas control system is performing appropriately. Looking at leachate then, so we've, we've been through gas. So leachate, how are we going to move from a system where we pump leachate out of the, the landfill, we store it, we treat it, we send it off site, et cetera, to something that's more passive? Um, leachate's a little bit more complicated than uh, gas, um, but we can look at some indicators of functional stability in the same way. There are some gateway indicators, some constituents of leachate that tell us a lot about the, uh, you know, the overall behavior and, and trend towards functional stability. I'll talk about that a bit more in a, in a second, but we would want to be able to do a statistical demonstration of downward trend uh, and concentrations below functional stability targets. Again, we're looking at whether a worst case leachate release would cause impacts, um, again, predicated on some level of, of cap maintenance. And then we'd want to do some monitoring to confirm that our proposed passive system um, is performing as designed. And again, focusing on can we wrap that into some level of general property maintenance as opposed to a, uh, a, you know, a regulated program. So long-term landfill behavior, there's a, lot, there's a high level of scientific knowledge available um, for this. Again, remember with regards to the degradation curves, we're trying to make sure the landfill stays in phase five, the stable methanogenesis trending towards methane oxidation and not uh, progressing beyond that. We have a lot of evidence showing that the bottommost layers of, of waste um, are well decomposed and act as a, as a filter. So as long as we're removing leachate from the bottom of a landfill, we know that behavioral trends that we've established using that leachate are going to be valid. Um, we see a lot of um, degradation occurring within the landfill, um, you know, above that uh, biofilter layer. So, you know, we know that remobilization of constituents of, of, in, of interest such as metals is not going to occur over the long term as long as conditions don't change dramatically. So as long as we don't let the cover degrade and have air intrusion occurring, you know, we can rely on um, the, the redox conditions within the landfill staying pretty consistent. Ammonia and chloride tend to accumulate because there aren't mechanisms within the, there aren't biological mechanisms to attenuate them within a landfill. So they generally are our main constituents of concern. And then our, our surrogate uh, gateway indicators of trends towards functional stability our biological oxygen demand and, and um, the BOD to COD ratio. So we have some functional stability indicators for what constitutes well-degraded waste with regard to those. Um, and then going through the leachate assessment, we want to um, you know, confidently characterize our source. So we need to know what's regulated in groundwater and surface water so that we can show that for every regulated constituent, we wouldn't cause impacts at the point of exposure. Um, we need a strategy for long-term leachate management um, so that we can scale back operation of the LCS. Uh, we need to consider the bathtub effect, that is you know, hydraulic equilibrium. So if you're gonna stop managing leachate, 
uh, you need to make sure that leachate isn't going to accumulate such that it would potentially uh, seep out of the side. Um, so, you know, you may need to think about a mechanism for continuing to manage leachate from a physical perspective, even when it's no longer a biochemical concern. Um, and then look at what our passive leachate management options are for that. As I showed in a previous slide, some people have used farmers' windmills to pump leachate, where it's a physical need as opposed to a biological concern. Um, and then, you know, to demonstrate the acceptability of a proposed strategy, we need to define our hydrogeological fate and transport model. Here's some examples of our gateway indicators. So, um, you know, with regard to BOD and the BOD-COD ratio at this site, you know, by the time we get to where we're doing our assessment, which was sometime in uh, 2012 in this example, uh, we can see that our, our um, leachate is exhibiting the appropriate trends and the data are below the functional stability targets that we've uh, established. Comparing to water quality standards, so, Initially, we would do a source compar comparison, so do a statistical, generate a st statistically representative concentration in leachate and just compare that directly to a groundwater or, or surface water standard. If you can meet all standards using source leachate, you know, if, you're, if your standards are drinking water standards and you can meet them all, that effectively means you can drink the leachate, so you're not really too worried about managing it from a biochemical perspective. Um, generally, um, you won't meet all standards at the source, in which case you're looking at, well, what would the concentration be if that constituent leaked from my landfill and got to a POC monitoring location, either a surface water outfall or a groundwater monitoring well. Um, and we can calculate a conservative dilution factor associated with that uh, based on a simple Darcy and flow model with uh, inputs either available from site studies or calculated using models such as, as HELP. Uh, generally, you'll find at most sites this data is available. Um, normally, um, there's been a pretty good hydrogeological assessment done as part of original siting and permitting studies. So uh, generally, you're not having to go out and measure this. It's just a question of finding it in uh, design documentation. So establishing the hydrogeological model, you know, looking at this cartoon here in terms of what's important. While leachate is being managed, which is the red um, uh, components here, you know, we're, we're removing leachate from a um, from the LCS, we're transferring it to a tank, and then it's being discharged off-site. If you're looking to remove that red pathway, then then you're looking at well, what's the potential for leakage into groundwater, and then um, what's the potential dilution that's going to occur in my subsurface? So, what concentration should I be looking at at my POC well to indicate um, whether I've uh, had an impact or not. And then similarly for surface water, you may potentially get seeps. Um, so if you have um, an on-site stormwater management system with an outfall with um, some uh, monitoring requirements there, then you would need to show that um, if you stop pumping leachate, you're not going to uh, end up with um, uh, impacts um, at your outfall. Um, but it's important, obviously, to remember that every site's very different, and you need to look at the site-specific hydrogeological model and, and the geologic setting and uh, see if you can take advantage of conditions there. So here's an example of a site in upstate New York that we looked at. This was an old sand and gravel quarry, quarry built into the side of a slope above a river. Um, so if we take a cross-section, the, the generalized direction of groundwater flow is down the page here. So if we take a cross-section through that, you can see that uh, we have waste deposits overlying uh, a very um, tight till, and underneath that are shale deposits, which represent the uppermost hydrogeologic, um, 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 the, the uppermost aquifer. Uh, all leachate drains to a tow drain here, so we have good uh, gravity drainage going on. If we look at what our potential uh, leakage to groundwater as a point of exposure, we can see that our time of travel to um, the, the groundwater table is very long. So that's not really a realistic um, um, leakage pathway for leachate. If leachate's leaking from that tow drain, it's going to leak into the sufficient deposits and head towards the river. So we can look, um, therefore, at what the potential pathways are to the river. One is indirect leakage through the, the subsurface via that alluvial uh, brown till deposit that's there or else we could have some direct uh, leakage uh, across the surface into on-site um, ponds, 
and therefore to outfalls. Um, we also, at this site, have an on-site wetland treatment system, so gravi leachate gravity flows to that system, gets treated, and then there's an outfall from the wetland treatment system to the river. So that's another potential uh, pathway for uh, leachate to leak to um, the point of exposure, which is the, the river. Um, so finally then, looking at our last component of functional stability and uh, maintaining final cover um, conditions. So what are our indicators of functional stability for a, a, a landfill cap? Um, there are regulatory requirements for the cap, which is primarily that it maintains its um, role as providing containment and isolation of the waste. There are performance requirements for the cap. It needs to be shown to be geomechanically stable, need to show that significant settlement um, is completed. Um, and again, in keeping with our overall approach of saying, well, let's look at when we reach a point where future um, changes are going to be de minimis, what we do is establish a 5% change on an annual basis um, as the target for functional stability. And I'll look at some examples of that. We've also got to remember that there are performance requirements for the cap that the outcome of previous evaluations of leachate and landfill gas management are probably predicated on. Uh, gas and leachate are always going to assume that there's some control of infiltration of, of uh, rainwater or um, you know, uh, emission of landfill gas. So if you've done an evaluation in previous, um, uh, looking previously at leachate or, or landfill gas um, that assumes there's a certain level of, of cap um, in place, then you need to ensure that that level of uh, cap performance stays in place. Um, so again, what management is required to maintain containment, maintain the integrity of the cover. The pictures at the bottom are all different examples of landfill caps. Over on the left-hand side, we have a typical subtitle D cover system, um, soil layers overlying a geomembrane and clay barrier system, um, kept neatly mowed so that trees aren't um, potentially growing into the cover and damaging the geomembrane a nice stormwater management with a perimeter drainage swale. So what we're looking at is maintaining that um, functionality with as little effort as possible. In the center, we have a couple of pictures of um, alternative covers using uh, evapotranspirative tree systems, either a, a pretty structured one on uh, center left or a more uh, natural um, type um, distribution of trees on the center right. And then, you know, increasingly people are looking at exposed geomembranes or, or exposed geomembranes with an engineered cover, uh, such as closure turf as alternative cover systems. Again, what, you're, what you need to show as part of your evaluation is that you can maintain the integrity of the barrier layer. So whatever your cover system is, um, and for an ET cover, your barrier is basically your sponge and pump mechanism. But whatever it is, you need to show that you can provide the level of care that's necessary to maintain that. And then again, we're always asking, can a landscaper provide this, perform this task, or does it need to be done by a professional? Because if a landscaper can do it, then you're definitely in a post-closure, in, in a post-regulatory custodial care kind of phase. Um, so estimating the time to functional stability with regards to cap settlement. We model this based on secondary settlement. You know, by the time you're doing this kind of evaluation, you're a couple of decades into post-closure. All primary settlement, consolidation, even mechanical creep should be completed. So what we're really looking at secondary settlement, which is related to landfill gas um, uh, generation, waste degradation. So once the rate of waste degradation starts to slow, the rate of secondary settlement will start to slow and we can show that we should have achieved a condition whether the annual rate of change is gonna be less than 5%. So we don't get a lot of differential settlement because it's differential settlement that creates cover system upsets like, like depressions and erosion and, and uh, ponding, et cetera. Um, so a very simple process for estimating that. Here's an example from a landfill um, in upstate New York where we modeled this and we showed that we should have um, achieved functional stability sometime around about 2003. Once we model it, obviously we then need to confirm it. Uh, a couple of ways we can do that. One is if you have settlement plates installed in the cover, then that, that gives you a very nice way of directly measuring settlement. Not many sites do that, but this is an example from a small municipal landfill in France that I did an evaluation on. Um, so we showed that the site should would have expected to be functionally stable in year 
15 uh, and our um, we were in year seven when did the analysis so using the settlement plate data we were able to show that the model is is uh, meets the the data pretty well and that we would expect that in another seven or eight years time at this site we would be uh, meeting the uh, functional functional stability criterion if you don't have settlement plates you can use topographic surveys you know aerial flyovers so this is an, an example from a site in new york where we did that so we modeled settlement which is the blue line and we predicted we would uh, achieve functional stability in 2006 and then we were able to look back through a series of topographic surveys and look at the difference in, in settlement on a, on a year by year basis and fit the red data to the line um, and show you know that, that we really were achieving those conditions that the model had predicted. So finally then uh, beneficial reuse of landfills is, is an important component of any evaluation of post-closure care. If you're looking to complete post-closure care, get your landfill to a fully passive uh, condition so that you can petition to uh, uh, surrender your post-closure permanent transition to custodial care. You need to look at mechanisms for putting your closed landfill to work. Um, an important part of this is custodial care is still care and care costs money. It may only be a few tens of thousands a year, but that's still money that needs to be available on a year by year basis. So one way of funding custodial care is through beneficial reuse. If you can uh, lease your site out as a host site for a renewable energy project, or um, if it can become a community asset with uh, recreational facilities such as um, you know, ballparks or cycle tracks or, or so on, if you can find a way for your site to earn the money that it needs to pay for the de minimis level of care that is represented by custodial care, then you've really managed to get to a uh, kind of perpetual funding scenario where you're not where the site is paying for itself um, and you know it's it's um, kind of rehabilitated back into society uh, in a beneficial way. So this is really what we're all, always trying to get to. Um, so in summary, um, under a performance-based approach, post-closure care is continued for as long as necessary um, and you have tangible targets to aim for in terms of demonstrating completion of post-closure care. You define those targets in terms of functional stability as we've uh, looked at through this presentation and quantified uh, functional stability in terms of leachate and landfill gas emissions and what their potential is to cause impacts at the point of exposure. You really need a lot of data and you need a lot of end-use planning um, so that you know what your end-use condition is that you're aiming for and you have enough data to do the kinds of analyses that are going to be required. In particular, with regard to leachate management, you, if you're having to demonstrate that your leachate meets all regulated parameters at the site with some statistical confidence, you're going to need a decent amount of data and it's got to be data collected over a long period so that you can do a longitudinal type data analysis and really have a lot of confidence that um, you know, you've got downward trends in concentration and you are at or below um, uh, limit values in each case. Uh, there are a lot of tools and things that have been developed and available to evaluate functional stability. I focused on the tool that Geosyntec developed with EREF, the EPCC methodology, but as I mentioned, there are tools um, available from, from other groups. Um, and ultimately, what you're looking at doing is always transitioning from fully active control to mostly passive and then fully passive. So with landfill gas, you're looking at going from active flaring to uh, you know, partial flaring with some hot spots at, at some hot spots while other parts of the site move to passive flares like tiki torches, for example. And then from there, transitioning away from all active um, um, and passive flaring towards use of bio covers, uh, bio vents, um, whirly gigs, et cetera, so that you've got a full passive system that a landscaper could care for. And similarly with leachate, you'd be looking to transition away from collecting leachate and trucking it off site or, or um, you know, some very active control system towards doing uh, de minimis level of treatment on site and then eventually uh, showing that you can completely stop your leachate collection system, establish uh, hydraulic equilibrium in terms of infiltration through the cover versus leakage through the liner, 
and demonstrate that your site um, is truly functional, functionally stable. You're always going to have some cap inspection and maintenance requirements um, through custodial care. But once all of all your controls are passive um, and, and really all you're doing is cap inspection and a, a few other activities, the regulated post-closure care program should end and custodial care would commence. And there are beneficial reuse options that help pay for the residual care um, that is required under, under that custodial care program. So with that, um, I finished speaking. I think I'm a five minutes or so over, but um, I think we're now open the um, the floor to some questions that have been received. Yep. Great, Jeremy. Thank you for a very interesting presentation. We do have a bunch of questions. Um, first, first one's kind of loaded. Um, what types of geomembranes <clears throat> can be considered for the final cover system? Um, I mean, Generally, when we're designing um, prescriptive covers, so that's where you have a geomembrane barrier overlying some kind of clay or, or low permeability soil, and then it's protected with a, a drainage layer and a, and a layer of topsoil above for vegetative support. We are generally using uh, linear low density polyethylene uh, for that. I think normally a 30 mil thickness, but I mean, that's, that's a design question. When the landfill designer is going through the process, they can really consider any any geomembrane at all, as long as the evaluation that they do shows that it's going to have the requisite you know, durability, uh, hydraulic performance, uh, puncture resistance, uh, etc. But um, as I say, the, mo the most common material that, that Geosyntec specifies for cover systems is LLH, um, linear low density polyethylene. Okay. Next is, are there additional considerations for ending PCC, post-closure care, of a landfill which has slash is experiencing elevated temperatures? Yeah, I would, I would say that there definitely is. I mean, the thing with post-closure care is to do an evaluation of ending care um, and demonstrating that it's appropriate to turn off or scale back your control systems, you have to show that you really have a very good handle on its long-term behavior and that its behavior is predictable and it meets it meets the, um, the, the results of models that you've applied. So I would say for any landfill that's undergoing elevated temperatures, at some point the, those landfills will be able to close and enter post-closure care and uh, you know, eventually terminate post-closure care. There's going to have to be a lot of work done to make sure that we understand the internal processes that are going on so that we can do the demonstration that says we understand the processes, they're predictable, we've done this demonstration that shows downward trends towards a target that we expect to meet, we've done some monitoring that shows that we met that target and therefore you know, this site is, is controllable and, and can transition out of care. Um, I don't think there are many sites with elevated temperatures that are closed. Um, I think most of them are uh, still have some active operations going on. So it hasn't been an issue that I've looked at yet because um, you know, the, the, there aren't landfills that are 10, 20 years into post-closure um, that have been experiencing this. Okay. Um, do you know of a case, uh, an engineered landfill who that has actually completed 25 years of PCC? Uh, if so, has there been any investigation at that site to assess the state of the waste? Um, and the idea is, if so, then you could use that to calibrate your, say, 25-year, et cetera, models. Um, yeah, there have been a couple of sites, in, including some that I've worked on, where people have done investigations of in-situ waste properties through time. Um, you know, as I noted, I'm, that data doesn't really help you when you're looking at post-closure care from a performance perspective and you're defining the end of care in terms of functional stability because that's really focused on what are the potential emissions from the landfill and what's the potential for those emissions to cause impact. So as long as I know that those emissions are going to be predictable, um, which which I do as long as I maintain the flow regime within the landfill that I 
talked about, you know, ensuring that leachate emerges from the bottom and isn't spilling out from the sides so that you've got the effect of that biofilter taking place and you've got predictable leachate quality um, associated with it. Um, within a landfill waste mass, there's always going to be some pockets of, of waste that are less degraded and some pockets of waste that are more degraded. So if you try to define um, completion of post-closure care in terms of there being no pockets of, of undegraded waste or not fully degraded waste within the landfill, I don't think that's going to be achievable until you were able to get all the way to that phase eight of the landfill behavior model that I showed early in my presentation. Um, and we have no data showing a landfill that's gone um, all of that way. Um, the expectations are that it would take you know, upwards of 50 years for a landfill to, to really achieve that. So I'm not really focused on that because I don't think it's useful for us to try and get there. I think it's more useful for us to get to a point of functional stability and show that we've achieved that and with a de minimis level of care. So you know, acknowledging that we're always going to have some care associated with maintaining the cover, but that as long as we do that, we don't, we're not concerned about there being some undegraded waste in the landfill. I think that's a much better approach in terms of you know, managing society's uh, resources and, and land assets. Yep. Um, <clears throat> Jeremy, I know you have a, a meeting at the top of the hour, so let me see if I can give you maybe one or two quick ones, and then we'll address the rest of these questions in your podcast next week on May 26th. So those of you that haven't entered questions or still have questions, send them to me and we will get them answered during the podcast on May 26th. Jeremy, um, for the New York example, where the landfill was near a river, was there any consideration of the impact of flooding or meandering into the landfill? Yes, um, some initial studies had been done, um, you know, much earlier than the evaluation that I was doing, which was 25 plus years into post-closure. But the landfill was, the, the toe of the landfill was outside of the 100-year um, floodplain from what I recall. So um, we didn't, we reviewed the documents that had been that had been done previously to look at that, but we didn't specifically consider it as part of our analysis um, because the landfill was, um, you know, outside of the floodplain. Okay, maybe but last. That would be an important consideration for a very low-lying landfill. Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe this is the last one. Is there a concentration of methane, not volume, and a concentration uh, that would be a good indicator of stability? Uh, it's a good question, and it's something we have looked at. Generally, I think I think no. Um, methane concentrations, particularly when they're measured at point sources like wells, um, can be quite deceptive, and particularly when we're getting towards the tail end of generation. Um, what happens is you have a very small volume of of pore space, you know, either in the waste or the well or in in soil that gets filled with gas and has an apparently high concentration, but very little volume. Um, so, you know, you get landfills that are, that are functionally stable in every regard, but still have methane concentrations above 35%, 40%. Um, what I'm really more interested in is, is what's the methane um, emission potential? So what's the concentration times the generation rate? because that really tells you, that gives you a flux, and a flux is what tells you what an impact is. A concentration doesn't really tell you what an impact potential is. And you, the, the simplest example being you could, you could have a very high concentration, but almost no generation, um, and the flux associated with that would be very low. Conversely, you could have a relatively modest concentration, but a high flow rate, and the flux associated with that would be pretty significant. So it, it's really concentration and, and generation are both important, but primarily generation, because generation tells you how actively um, you know, gas uh, waste is degrading. Okay, all right, Jeremy, we have probably 15 to 20 more uh, questions. So 
can you go to the last couple slides? We'll handle these in our podcast next week. Sure. Here's the contract information for Jeremy, myself, and Jennifer Miller. If you have additional questions on post-closure care of landfills, just please send them to one of us and we will address them next week in Jeremy's podcast on May 26th. Okay, Jeremy, next. Our next webinar will be testing and design of geosynthetic drainage composites. This includes the textiles and the geonet that are bonded together to create a drainage geocomposite. That is Tuesday, June 16th, and the presenter is Eric Blonde from Canada. Okay. Finally, I'd like to wrap up today with a list of the resources available on the FGI website, our online PDH program where you can go and watch any of the webinars that have been recorded previously if you miss them and obtain a PDH certificate for the hour. Also, we have some new podcasts. These are video podcasts where we actually record video the first one is a landfill case history, a slope stability case history, as well as demonstrating some of our geomembrane leakage and pond leakage calculators. Also on the website, specifications, guidelines, test methods through videos, and so on. So visit fabricatedgeomembrane.com. Um, Jeremy, thanks again for an excellent webinar and joining us from Columbia, Maryland. I will talk with you on May 26th. Thanks. Thank you.